Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I want to talk to him. One of the great arts of conversation. Sounds charming. The only thing that sounds better is the radio. Well, I tune right in at midnight. But tend to the radio waves. I hold my thoughts till they were just right. Always listen to the Bradley J. I was open to views with ears on the news. As they talked, I was focused so much. I called on the phone in my car and my home. Came out in control and in touch. The middle of sound and the thoughts that surround when they said speak up, I didn't walk. Here we are, 50 uh, years down the road from the first human beings on the moon. And uh, it it makes everyone think about space again. It's kind of exciting. I'm one of those folks. We've talked a lot about the actual mission, but I'd like to get a little broader here with our next guest, Rod Pyle, space historian. He's worked with NASA, Jet Propulsion Laboratory, and the Johnson Space Center, and has written a lot as well. He has written for PBS and, well, you've also been involved with Deep Space Nine and Battlestar Galactica, so you pretty interesting stuff. Thanks for being with us. Well, thanks for having me, and it's, uh, you know, some people would call me a diverse career background person. Other people would call me a dilettante, but, uh, you know, I'll take whatever comes. Well, you can choose. I'll let you decide. Okay. So, so let's start uh, with what you did and have done for NASA. So I uh, had, had kind of worked around the edges of NASA off and on uh, back in the, the 90s, mostly uh, doing television production, so occasionally we'd cross over into what NASA was doing, but I wasn't an employee of theirs. But then um, about 2009, I got hired to write this really interesting program. They wanted an executive training program. It was a partnership between NASA and this group called the Conference Board out of New York. So I got together with a guy from IBM, and we wrote up this uh, training program and did that for a couple of years. That was great fun because if you're going to talk, if you're going to give people lectures about how great the space age was, having a Saturn V behind you as a prop is about as cool as it gets, right? So Absolutely. That was really fun. And then uh, finally, uh, sometime in about 2012, I guess, 2013, I started working for Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena on a as-needed basis, writing uh, books and articles for them. And that, that was really cool because now you're sitting there talking with the guys that make all this stuff happen. So this guy worked on the manipulator arm of the rover, and this guy over here worked on some kind of inflatable antenna system for CubeSats. And they're just brilliant, really dedicated people that are so passionate and excited about what they do. And, of course, that then translates into you if you're listening to them and hopefully into the writing. Can you talk a little bit about Mars making contact and also the blueprint for a battle star? 
Mars Making Contact was a coffee table. They're both coffee table books in a sense. Mars Making Contact was, uh, I'd written two books before that kind of looked over the Mars missions from mostly the American perspective, somewhat from the Russian perspective, the Soviet perspective, but they didn't have the kind of luck we did. So there's much more of an American story there. And then as we got into about 2015, 2016, uh, one of the publishers I worked with said, you know, we'd really like to look at everybody's projects. So that means the United States and Europe and um, Japan's made an attempt and, and India actually succeeded with their very first try a couple of years ago. And they wanted to do a picture book of it. So I thought, oh, this is great. And they're actually going to pay me too. So I got to go hang out in the archives at Jeff Poston Laboratory and a few other places and dig through all the old photos and interview the folks that worked on it and so forth. So it's just a really fun kind of a broad look at, at basically everything that's happened since about 1964 forward. You're involved with a, a thing called the NSS. What's that? That's the National Space Society. It's a group. It's the oldest pro-space human spaceflight group out there. It was actually founded, it's two organizations that merged. One of them was founded by Werner von Braun, the father of the Saturn V, back in the 1970s. And then the other group, subgroup, was formed uh, by a guy, or under the auspices of a guy named Jerry O'Neill, who was big in the space colonies. He was a visionary out of Princeton. So those two groups merged a few years later and formed the society. So it's uh, just a huge pro-space advocacy group. They have some political action they do. I edited a magazine called Ad Astra, which is a nice, splashy, quarterly periodical. And then uh, we've got yearly conventions and education programs and STEM programs and so forth. So it's just a really good good group of people. I listened to, uh, I don't know if it was a podcast, it was some broadcast of some kind uh, that you were involved in, and it was. You know, I learned a lot from it. And you talked about whether it would make more sense next to go to um, the moon again or to try to go to Mars. Can you talk about the, the risk-reward pros and cons of each of those? So this is a long discussion. You know, if you want to start a food fight in one of these space advocacy groups, just get an argument going of, of moon over Mars or vice versa. And it's been going on for a long time. We've been talking about going to the moon since Jules Verne wrote about it in the 1800s. We've been talking about going to Mars at least since the 1940s, when Werner von Braun started writing seriously about it, really before that, with uh, various other visionaries. And the question's always been, you know, which one's achievable? So we did the moon in the 1960s with the Apollo project, so we know that's that's doable. And I wouldn't say it's behind us, but we kind of picked the low-hanging fruit there. So the question now is, with limited budgets and limited, frankly, attention span with both the public and Congress, which one do you pick? Well, a Mars program is a very ambitious goal. It would be very inspiring for people, but it could be anywhere from hundreds of billions to, by some estimates, as much as a trillion dollars. And it's a long trip. You know, by the time you go out and do your thing there and come back, it could be a year and a half, two years. And we just don't yet quite know enough about the effects of extended spaceflight on people, both in terms of no gravity and also the radiation out there. Uh, we kind of understand it, but we need to know more about how to mediate it and how to keep it from, from damaging people. So the moon just makes an awful lot of sense in terms of something that's achievable. There's a lot of science rewards there. There's a lot of training and work we could do towards getting to Mars. And probably most importantly, as it turns out, recently discovered as in the last decade, there's a lot of frozen water on the south pole of the moon in the form of ice. 
And where you got water, you can melt that and make rocket fuel, and you can make breathable air, and you can make drinking water, and you can do all kinds of stuff. There's also metal and glass and some other elements on the moon that are very useful. So for every bit of that that you find there and can use there or use to go beyond to Mars, let's say, that's a whole bunch of stuff you don't have to launch into space. So you can use smaller rockets to save money. It all just gets much, much, much easier. So for my money, the moon's the, the, the next logical step. Yeah, and plus the the reward of going to Mars is more strictly scientific, not so much commercial, right? Like there's a possibility, at least in a distant fantasy, to manufacture on the moon. Maybe it will be cheaper somehow, and you just kick the stuff back to Earth, and you could have a an Earth that's hypercrowded and dying because of so much industry on it. You could have all the industry up there. I mean, is that a crazy, crazy, unthinkable thing, or is that at least something you could no. pretend that might be a reason to go to the moon? Well, I think that's where the settlement discussion comes in. That's one of the things the, the National Space Society is very focused on. So, you know, it's not a fantasy. It's doable. It's workable. We know that we've got everything in place with today's technology if we just get off our behinds and do it. But Jeff Bezos, founder of Amazon, is so keen about. He formed a rocket company actually before Elon Musk did with SpaceX. Be Bezos formed a company called Blue Origin back in 2000, and his express purpose was to move heavy manufacturing off of Earth, do it in space where it's not going to hurt anybody, and allow the planet to heal and go back to an Eden-like state, if you will, and uh, give people options to live and work off of Earth because there's a lot more resources, even in the local solar system, than there is on Earth. You just have to go out and get them. So there's a pretty compelling financial argument here. And as you know, as well as I do, when there's a profit to be made, suddenly things start moving a lot faster. So I think that's what we're on the cusp of right now. So wouldn't it be, oh, my gut would say, it'd be prohibitively expensive to manufacture stuff on the moon, but that's not the case? It doesn't have to be the case. I mean, the thing is, uh, is to make getting there for the first few dozen times less expensive. And when we were doing it with the Saturn V back in the 1960s, it cost a bundle. You know, in today's dollars, the Apollo program would have been about $150 billion, $160 billion. So that was expensive for six landings. But nowadays, when you have Elon Musk flying his rockets for, in some cases, virtually a third or, or less than the other commercial providers are, and they're already cheaper than it was in the 1960s, and they're reusable, they fly back to home base robotically all by themselves and land, and you refuel them, you use them again, and Bezos is doing something very similar, and other companies are trying to get in on that act. Now you're reducing costs down by maybe a factor of 10 or ultimately 100. And when you start reaching those numbers, suddenly going out and doing stuff on the moon gets very affordable and makes a lot of sense. And the other side of that is once you're there and you've got these manufactories going, you commoditize this stuff. So you put a price on it. So whether it's the U.S. government or private industry who's or the international sector for that matter saying, yeah, I'll, I'll buy that gallon of liquid oxygen for this many dollars or space credits or whatever we call them. At that point, now you've got a real economy out there, and it becomes very much like how the free market works on Earth. And again, where there's money to be made, people will go. So you, in effect, have kind of a gold rush out there. So it's really not as far-fetched as one might think. Is, are there minerals out there that it would make it worth it? Any chance there's oil on the moon? <laughs> no, because you got to have... You gotta have uh, you gotta have animals. Sorry, all right, sorry. Yeah, you gotta have the dinosaurs. You gotta have to, plant matter. Down, you know. All right, right, all right. Sorry, sorry to be dumb there. But 
No, but there is there is helium three, which is a form of helium that can be very useful for fusion. And we're still struggling to get fusion to work. But if you can get fusion to work, that becomes worth a lot of money. Oh, so yeah. suddenly now going up there and getting that stuff, you're going to make a bundle. So yeah, it's, it's a very real possibility. So much less atmosphere, if any. I don't know what they have for atmospheric conditions. How does that affect manufacturing? Is it a good thing or a bad thing? On the moon? Yeah. Um, there's none. It's a it's a virtual hard vacuum. So for a lot of things, I mean, just being there is hard because, uh, you know, you, you don't have any, any air. You don't have any atmosphere. And because of that, there's no weather. And so the heat side, the heated side of your spacecraft, your spacesuit, is up at about 250 degrees Fahrenheit. The dark side is down to about minus 200 plus Fahrenheit. So you've got these temperature extremes to deal with. You've got a vacuum. There's radiation hitting the moon. So it's kind of a nasty place. Uh. I, I joke often that it's even worse than some of the desert towns out here in Southern California where I live, which are pretty grim. But they're paradise compared to being on the moon. On the other hand, there are some processes of manufacturing that are much easier to do in a vacuum. So it kind of depends on what you're up there to do. All right. And are there any alternative ways to get back and forth that don't involve spacecraft? I remember hearing about a tether. Has that been rendered ridiculous? And just getting manufactured stuff back with the with so much less gravity, it must be easier to at least get stuff out of the orbit of the, the moon, out of the moon. And can you just kind of shoot it out of a cannon and get it back to Earth if you do the trajectory right? So I'll, I'll take that in the order you asked. So the first thing you're talking about with tethers is space elevators. And it's basically a big filament or cable that goes from Earth up to a certain altitude where it's stable. And you put a mass on the far end of it. And it's basically like swinging a rock on a string around your head, you know. And then you uh, are able to run an elevator up and down there very efficiently and very economically. The problem is not will it work, we don't think. The problem is the materials. You need these really exotic nanomaterials to make a cable strong enough and light enough to do that. In theory, it makes a lot of sense, and now it, it gets really expensive to go back and forth. So that's an idea that a lot of people like. Um, in terms of the, uh, what was the second half of your question? Well, getting manufactured stuff back might be easy oh, yeah. because you have so much less gravity. Well, part of the thing is, what do you want to bring back? Most of what you're going to make up there is going to stay there. So you want to make rocket fuel, you want to make air, you want to make spacecraft components, you want to make landing pads and habitats and all that. A lot of that you can even just make out of lunar dirt because it actually makes a very good sort of a concrete. Um, in terms of what you might want to bring back to Earth, about the only thing I've heard of that makes a lot of sense is uh, rare Earth elements. And those are the kind of exotic uh, elements that you find mostly in China, right? And they they are derived from asteroids, as it turns out, and they're necessary for a lot of electronics and high tech stuff. So you want those, but if China ever decides, you know what, we don't want to sell to you anymore, we could be in a world of pain. So uh, people are looking at asteroids for that. So you'd have to mine it and extract it, and then process it and send it back to Earth. It's not hard to do. But when you're flinging large masses from orbit down towards the planet, people start getting nervous because if your aim is off, you're basically sending a meteor into Boston, which you don't want to do. So there's a lot of actual political and legal work that has to take place before we start doing that. But in principle, it works fine. What are the pros and cons of governmental space programs versus private? It seems the private's faster and cheaper, but are there downsides? You know, private has been 
faster or cheaper for the short time that we've been seeing it. When you talk about private, you're really talking about SpaceX at this point, because even though United Launch Alliance and Northrop Grumman and the other old school contractors are modernizing quickly and really upping their game, they're not doing it the way that Musk and Bezos have, which is, hey, I'm rich and I'm just going to spend my own money to build rockets and make my own space program. So, of course, that's cheaper. It's more effective. It's more economical. Um, You know, NASA has a different way of doing things. But there's another way of looking at it, which is, you know, the Apollo program and to a certain extent, the shuttle were very successful, fairly safe, more Apollo than the shuttle. But uh, that's because NASA crosses every T and dots every I to the nth degree. So, for instance, when you're talking about the Apollo program and the ones that came before it, they knew where the metals were mined, who, who processed the ore, who forged the parts, who machined them, who finished them, who handed them to who. They had a complete record all the way back to the very origins of, of most of the things that were used in that program and an incredible engineering team, and they tested everything as, as much as humanly possible. So it tended to be very safe. Modern industry has been taking some shortcuts, you could call them, and um, usually that works, but every now and then it bites you in the back end. As long as you're just flying satellites and machines, it's not that big a deal. It's not good, but it's not terrible. But once you start putting people's lives in the line, you have to be a little more careful. So I'd say if there's any downside, it's that a little oversight, a little more oversight than we've seen might be required to make sure that when these things are flying people, they're as safe as possible. But ultimately, I think the real sweet spot here is, is an overlap between th- three things. Government, NASA, which is still the, the premier space agency on the planet. The international sector, which is mostly national space agencies, smaller ones than ours, but also some private players. And then private industry in the U.S. And where these things overlap, you kind of have this magic spot, this golden spot, where things could start happening really quickly if it's done intelligently. You think if it's all, well, in the private sector, you run in run the risk of having a Boeing-type situation? Is that kind of what you fear? Oh, you're talking about the 737 MAX? Yeah. Um, yeah, not quite that pronounced, perhaps. But, for instance, at one point, SpaceX had a rocket blow up early in the commercial history of the Falcon 9. And then looking into it, they discovered that one of their subcontractors, a supplier, had given them a bracket that held a fuel tank that had been against SpaceX's express instructions, been subbed out to China and inferior materials were used and it broke and the rocket exploded. That's a very small thing that can lead to very, very big consequences. So they have since decided that they're going to make everything in-house and things have worked much better. But those kind of things can happen to anybody, you know. So it's just a matter of where you're watching and where you're investing your money. You still want to make a profit, so you don't want to overdo it with the testing and the caution. But you also, again, you're protecting people's lives, so you want to be extremely cautious. So there's a tricky balance there, and part of that involves regulations, the FAA and NASA and all these other organizations that tend to be pretty bureaucratic. So there's a lot of work to do, and it's going to take a while. One more question, and that is, initially in the space program, you're getting all sorts of... uh, products that were better, more efficient, you, you stronger, lighter materials. You had these right. com- commercial, usable side effects of the space program. Is that Did that slow down? Did, did we reach the margin of diminishing returns on that, or is that likely to continue and increase? Yeah, that's a really interesting question because I think it's changed more than anything else. So the, the most conservative estimates I've seen say that we got about $14 out every dollar we put into the space race years. That's a pretty damn good return. That's pretty amazing. Um, 
that was the low hanging fruit. You know, we were developing big rockets for the first time. We were going to the moon for the first time. We we're doing satellites and orbital stuff for the first time. Now it gets a little harder because we want to go back. We want to do more. We want to carry more. So we're investing in different things. And obviously in the intervening 50 years, you know, what's happened? Well, we didn't get flying cars and cities in the skies, but we did get an incredible rise in the amount of stuff you could do with digital computing. And we got this huge consumer sector, which nobody envisioned quite the way it's turned out. So I think you start seeing different things coming back from these programs, Uh, just two of them up front. One is, let's remember that all the money that's invested, at least on the government side of NASA, doesn't get shoveled into spacecraft and blown into space. It's spent here on people. That's one of the few things of that kind where it's all spent in the U.S., and that's good for the U.S., um, also, if you go like I do to these NASA field centers and talk to people, you say, what inspired you to get into this? There's one group that says Star Trek. There's a younger group that says Star Wars. But there's a huge group that crosses both age, the entire age range, really, that says NASA and the Apollo program and the space shuttle and the space station and the Hubble Space Telescope is what that got those people worked up to go into STEM fields and science and research and so forth. And I think we need to see that again. Mm-hmm. And the dividends of that are, are unbelievable. Overall excitement about STEM and science. Which of your books, things you've published, would you want us to pick up? If you want, if you said, hey, I really want you to go get <laughs> Amazing Stories of the Space Age or one of the other books or well, things yeah, you've written. I'd, I'd say, you know, if you want something on the Apollo program, I just released one called uh, First on the Moon, forward by Buzz Aldrin. It's great fun. It's a wonderful stroll down memory lane and a good education. It's got some new pictures in there we haven't seen before. If you want something uh, a little more fun, Amazing Stories of the Space Age is a hoot because it's about half stuff that did fly that we didn't know much about and could be very weird to you. And the other half is stuff that we thought we were going to fly but never did, both us and the Russians. There's some really crazy stuff in there, you know, German space planes from World War II, which is where the Nazis and the title come in and U.S. Army plans to build a base on the moon in 1959 and all this kind of stuff. So that one's just, just a lot of fun to read. Hey, you're a great guest, Rod Pyle. I really appreciate it. Rod's a space historian, work with NASA, Jet Propulsion Laboratory, the Johnson Space Center, and fascinating guest. We really appreciate the time. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care and enjoy the Apollo anniversary on Saturday. Absolutely. Rod Pyle, it's WBZ. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.